0: We're in the fourth week of our series in the book of Amos, Remaining Faithful in Prosperity. So if you remember, Amos was a working landowning farmer in South Judah who worshiped the one true God. And one day God called him to go and preach to their sister nation, Israel. And things in Israel, as we've covered, were both good and bad, depending on the right questions you ask. Economically, things were good. For the upper class, at least, Wall Street and big tech and big oil and big pharma and big government and big religion were doing just fine, as they often do. They lived lavishly while the poor got poorer. Militarily, things were good. The borders of Israel were as far out as they had been. There was relative peace in the land. Religiously, if you ask the priest and the king, things were good. Attendance at the temples were up tithes and offerings were up. The band was pumping. Even Baal worshipers felt comfortable coming to worship in the temple of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Baal worshipers and Yahweh worshipers, arms locked side by side. Beautiful. But if you noticed, that was a joke, just in case, don't put that on the internet. All right. In case you noticed something I said about that last part that you should think about. I said, if you ask the priests... And the king, they said things were good. But there's one missing party there, isn't there? Of course, the priests were happy. The temples were booming. Of course, the king was happy. Civil religion is a great thing for a kingdom. This version of Judaism would never call out the king like the old prophets would. But of course, what's missing is the right question. What does God think? of how we're doing. Not just economically, not just militarily, not even in just the church, but in our lives, in our personal lives. What does God think of how we are doing? After reading today's text in Amos 4, I was left with this question. If God were to show up today, right now, what would happen in your heart? What would you feel? In fact, I want today's message to be one of the most evangelistic messages that I've preached in a while, targeted to those outside the faith or those that are here and just hanging on. This message is entitled, The Moment That You Meet God. One day, we will all meet God. In case that's news for you, let me break it to you. One day, we will all meet God. God is the inescapable reality of the universe. One day, you will stand face to face with your creator. And this will either be the ultimate culmination of your joy, of your longing, the shedding of all your suffering and pain, or it will be ultimate terror. And I can't bank on the fact that you've heard this before, so I'm laying it out today. The life you live now, The on average 72 years you get on this rock will determine the infinite eternity that follows, and then you meet God. So, are you prepared for that? Eighth century BC Israel was not prepared. But listen, you are not eighth century BC Israel. You can be prepared they would not and did not return to God, but you can today. Pray with me before we look at God's word. Our Father, Lord, we ask your hand of blessing and power upon this moment. Would you open up spiritual eyes long darkened? Would you shed the calluses that lay upon our hearts, the scales over our eyes? And allow us to see what truly matters in this life. And that is a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts in the fourth chapter. We're picking up where we left off last week at verse 6. We stopped at verse 5 last week. If you remember, God through Amos just called out all those wealthy elites on the mountain, the fat cows of Bashan. You probably liked that. He called out the false worship in the temples of Bethel. He continues in his judgment against Israel in verses 6 through 13. That's going to be our passage today. We read here in verse 6 through 13 the words of God to Israel. And what he's going to do is going to, he's, God's going to recount all of the missed opportunities to repent that Israel had and did not avail themselves of. It's a list of various episodes of suffering in Israel's recent history, none of which were catalysts for their repentance. It's almost as if without saying out loud, everyone knows pain and suffering are unique opportunities in your life to turn or return to God. You, you know that by experience, those of you that have experienced pain and suffering. The doors of our hearts naturally swing open in times of pain. We call out for God. We lean on him during suffering. At least that's what seems to be God's expectation in this. But Israel did not do that. Let's read together Amos 4, 6. God said through Amos... I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you, and there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and no rain on another city, and one field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. And So two and three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah And you were, as a brand, plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. Praise the Lord. Today's outline is going to be very simple. I have two of the most important questions that can ever be asked in your life. Here's number one. What produces faith and repentance in my life? What produces faith and repentance in my life? It's important that as we look at Israel, we don't simply consider it as a distant historical example, but rather a picture of our lives. So what's happening here? God is listing off to Israel all the things that did not produce repentance. Remember, repentance means, in case you're new to church, repentance means to agree with God on what is and is not sin. So God says it's sin, you agree with him. Then you throw off that sin, and return to a right relationship with God. So, in case you need a little short zinger, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of body. A change of mind that results in a change of body. It's not just enough to think it. Yeah, I I agree, that's bad. Then you go do it. Uh, it, It's a a connection between what you know and what you do. So, what uh, what failed in Israel's life to produce repentance? Well, let's look at these. Verse 6, God said... I gave you cleanness of teeth, and all the dentists said, amen. All right. no, that might sound good. Lord, bless me with the Zoom whitening treatment. You know, give me a box of Crest strips. No, that's not what we're talking about. This is a Hebrew idiom, okay? This is a Hebrew idiom. Case, in fact, if you have an NIV, uh, they just go ahead and, and translate the idiom for you. They don't let you do this work. But here's what it says if you've got, like I'm reading an ESV or something else, a King James It's an idiom that cleanness of teeth means to the Hebrews, you don't even have enough food to get your teeth dirty. You don't have nothing to get stuck in your teeth. You don't even need floss because there's no steak in there, right? So uh, it's kind of like we go back and think about the Victorian era, how it was like you were attractive if you were really overweight because that meant you had money to afford food, right? Just kind of, we can't just just say it's an idiom. We can't uh, understand what they mean by that, but this is like that. So that's what cleanness of teeth, man. You didn't have any food. Next verse confirms the idiom. I gave you lack of bread in all your places. You had times of famine, times when there wasn't enough food. And in that, you didn't turn to me. Verse 7, God says, I withheld rain. That's a drought. Even right before the harvest, that's when you need that rain. You were wandering from city to city asking, you got water? You got water? Well, we don't see that very often we saw a piece of it in february though didn't we we were filling up people's water bottles here at the church verse 9 god says i struck you with blight and mildew in your gardens and locusts devoured your trees these are crop diseases that can wipe out your entire field now for us that's not a huge deal we, we have international trade so if you don't like your oranges over here you just go get your oranges over here right but in those days this was your life if your field went had a problem It was serious business. You wouldn't eat. God said, I struck your fields with blight. Locust came. 17-year locusts came and devoured your field. Verse 10, God says, I sent a plague. We might say the word pandemic now. Boy, diseases to the body. I sent armies to raid you. Death filled the streets. And yet you didn't return to me. You still didn't come back. Verse 11, God says, I sent natural disasters upon you. The example of Sodom and Gomorrah is given. That was raining fire and brimstone. We could see this as potentially earthquakes, tornadoes, all, all things natural disasters. He said, but you didn't return. You didn't come back. So if we step back, we see a people that had been through famine, drought, crop disease, locus swarms, plagues, enemy army attacks, natural disasters. And what did they do? Absolutely nothing differently. What did they avail themselves as as far as their walk with the Lord? Nothing. They absolutely wasted the suffering that they endured. The suffering and pain sent upon them by God as discipline for their sin to cause repentance in their life did not result in a return to God. Therefore, it was just pain for pain's sake you know, let me me be really clear, not every instance of suffering in your life is a judgment from God. You know that? You believe that? In Luke 13, Jesus referenced a tower that fell in Siloam, killing 18 people. This is a barely talked about story of Jesus. He said to the crowd, what about this tower that fell over in Siloam, those 18 people that died? Do you think they're worse sinners than you? The answer was, no. Some lived and some died. Is it a simple math equation in life to say, oh, that something bad happened over there. God must be really letting them have it. Is it that simple? No. Jesus himself said it doesn't work like that. What did Jesus say in Luke 13, 5? He said, no, but I will tell you this. Unless you repent, you will all perish just like they did. So understand this. This is good. Not every bit of suffering and pain in your life is a direct judgment from God. But every bit of suffering and pain is an opportunity to take stock of your life and return to God. Do you see that? What causes you to return to God in your life? What, What triggers that recalibrate? Israel had every bad thing happen, imagine, to them. And they didn't care. They kept sinning. They kept embracing idols. They kept doing what they wanted to do. They never recalibrated. They never cried out to the Lord for forgiveness and sorrow. But not only that, we know from the current context of what we read, they didn't cry out to him in prosperity either. When the crops were good, when the bellies were full, and the wells had water and the bank accounts were loaded, did they turn then? No. Listen here today, maybe I can save you some pain don't be like that in your life. If you're in the dark valley and you've got pain and everything is going wrong, don't say, I'll turn to God when things turn up in my life. Don't do that. First of all, no, you won't. You don't just control your spiritual condition like that. There's not a button on the back of your head that you just put, repent. It it doesn't just work like that. You don't just get to snap your fingers and have spiritual outcomes occur in your life like that. When you're on the mountaintop, things are sweet, things are going well. Don't wait until things get dark to call upon the Lord and turn to him. There's no guarantee you will. There's no guarantee you will when things do get bad because you might turn on him. This was Israel's problem, according to God. You don't repent when life is hard. You don't repent when life is easy. But make no mistake, God is not in the heavens wringing his hands because he will be worshiped he will be glorified and he will get our attention now look god's not sadistic you need to know that he's not doling out pain in this life because he likes to see us squirm he is trying to draw us to himself he wants us to call out upon his name in all of life in every season on mountains, valleys, he wants us to say whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's what he wants us to do. Young people, let me just, don't require of God a dramatic testimony experience to be saved. Look, I love I love the story of the Apostle Paul. You love the story, all right? We, we love it. But don't make Jesus blind you for three days and knock you off the horse to get your attention. Okay? Don't make him do that. He will do that. Have faith in Jesus Christ because he is enough the first time. Because he is worthy of your worship without you having to be dragged over the coals to see it. And maybe that's part of your story. Maybe getting dragged over the coals is part of your testimony And it's what God is going to do in your life. But know this, that does not have to be your story because anyone can be saved right now, today. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God, if you believe God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If you've never made a break with your sin, it's called repentance. You hear us say that word all the time. That's what it is. If you've never trusted In Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin, that trust we call faith, faith and repentance. The first question to answer today, what does it take to repent in my life? Will I require God to send me suffering because of my hardness of heart? Or will following Jesus and glorifying him with my life be the prize in itself? We know what Israel's answer would be, and so we can read about that in verses 12 through 13. That's what we're going to do. After God lists off all these things that failed to trigger repentance, he says this. Look with me, Amos 4:12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold... He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the height of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The second question I would like to bring to your attention today is this. Number two, are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet God? Reading this text, that line in verse 12, I always like to tell People, as I prepare for sermons, I I wait for a, the lightning usually strikes me somewhere on some phrase or some word or some study. That phrase, prepare to meet your God. Boy, that was the lightning this week. I don't know about you, but I I feel scared for them reading that. Obviously, from the context we covered today, they, they refused to repent and return to God. We know this is not a good meeting. All right, we know the context of Amos. But thinking about this, I think it's a worthwhile venture in our life, 2021, right now to answer this question in our minds. Am I ready to meet God? Am I prepared? And maybe you're here today, you're not really churched. Maybe you're churched, but you've just never paid attention. That happens. Maybe you're confused by this question. You don't even know what this question means. What does it mean to even prepare to meet God? Is there some reservation you have to make? You have to get on Yelp or something. But what do you do? Is there some ticket, some Polar Express, click, 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 ticket that you get stamped? And what what do you do? Is there a toll-free number that you call? God, can I make a reservation? Do you have to be initiated or do some kind of dance on a mountaintop or sign something in blood? Or do you have to say the right phrase or walk an aisle or shake a preacher's hand or say a special prayer? Do you have to be sinless? Do you have to stop sinning forever and be perfect? Do you have to pledge allegiance to some flag somewhere? What is the process To be prepared to meet your God. I know why you guys are here. I know why you're at this church. You like no games, no frills, no tricks, right? Just like straight truth. Here it is. The answer to that question is, has everything to do with what you do with Jesus Christ? Let me explain. God is absolutely holy. Holy. He's not like us. He is perfect and righteous and sovereign, and he has all power, and he has all knowledge. He is the ultimate reality. Nothing predates him. Nothing will ever defeat him. Nothing will ever outlast him. He made us in his image to love and worship and glorify him, to be fruitful and multiply, to build families and civilizations that honor him, to take up dominion over this world, to cultivate it. Well, there's a complicating factor. We don't do our job very well. God is perfect, and He deserves and demands righteousness from us, but we sin. We sin. We break His law. We break His heart. We rebel. We do things our own way rather than His way. That's all called sin. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous on this earth. Not you, not me, not the best person you know, not Mother Teresa. Not one person is righteous, on this earth. Nobody is good enough on their own merits to perfectly please a holy God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And maybe you've felt that in your life. The constant nagging suspicion in your life that you don't live up, stack up, or measure up. But there's some better way out there to live that you think of, that you're not hitting some mark somewhere. Maybe you've overtly done things in your life that you're not proud of. You know they're wrong. And you actively try to hide these things from the light of day. You see, Romans 1.21 says that we all actually intuitively know that God exists. We know that we were made. We know that there is some kind of standard to be hit in this world. But it also says we actively suppress that knowledge. We take that... And we suppress it, we swallow it, we shove it deep down somewhere into some dark cavity, and we just don't touch it because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with the fact that there's a standard. So then we can guilt-free go out and live however we want to. And so we pursue a life like that. And on the surface, it, it may seem that we're pursuing our best life now, that it's everything we ever thought it would be. But in reality, it is death waiting to happen. It is rotting decay with a spritz of perfume. Romans 6.23 says, The outcome of unaddressed sin in your life, the wages of sin, is death. And people, we, we're tricky. We're slick. We invent ways to get out of this, to get around this. We invent religions. We make sacrifices and try to have enlightenments, and we light candles and sit in smoke-filled rooms, and we do charity and we whisper in the ear of a priest and we bow down five times a day and pray and we give money to the church and we do all sorts of things, anything to assuage that feeling of guilt that we're not hitting it, that we're not hitting the standard. Anything to make you believe that God is with you because you're a good person and you do good things. But listen, there is one way to be right with God and to deal with your sin. And it doesn't make sense to come from any other way, but from God himself. God made a way for us, and it's the only way. So listen, God, knowing our inability to meet his standards, to save ourselves from the consequences of sin, sent the person of Jesus Christ to the earth. Now Jesus did a lot of things, and you know some of those things. He taught lessons, he fulfilled prophecies, He performed miracles, yes, but essentially Jesus came to do three big things. First, Jesus came to live a perfect life that you could not live. You can't live in such a way that perfectly honors God. You can't be sinless. You can't do it, but Jesus did it in every way. Secondly, Jesus came to remove sin that you cannot remove. You know, sin is sticky. You can't just make it go away. You've broken a holy God's expectations. You can't undo that. You can't out charity that. So Jesus who never sinned was crucified on a cross and he took your sins onto his body as the perfect lamb of God, the sin offering. He became sin as all of your sins were transferred to him. He loaded up your sin on the cross. He took the full load of God's wrath and anger towards your sin. He took it so you didn't have to. He took it there and he died. And buried, he carried our sins far away. Thirdly, Jesus defeated the undefeated foe, and that is death itself. Jesus died and was buried in the tomb for three days, but he was raised to life on the third day, never to die again. This created the pattern that all of those who unite to him will follow. Like Jesus, we will all die once, but we will also be resurrected to eternal life when He comes, never to die again. And we can have confidence that God is on our side when we approach Him through this approved channel because He created it. This, through the blood of Jesus Christ, is the way that we get to have a relationship with God by grace, through faith in Christ alone. How do you prepare to meet God? You believe that. You believe that and you take action. You believe it and you act as if you believe it. You turn against your sin and you turn to Jesus in faith. God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the promise of the gospel now let's go back and finish with this theme of meeting God what would happen if God tore the roof off of this building and you literally saw Jesus coming on the clouds can you have that moment in your mind right now can you picture that the hand of God just comes out of heaven rips this roof off and boom there he is he's coming you see Jesus coming What would you feel in your heart and soul if you knew for sure it's game time? You're about to meet God. If you are prepared, if you're prepared, and you've believed in the gospel that I've just described, and you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it will be the most incredible, exhilarating, wonderful experience that is possible to be experienced in one second your faith will become sight all this time of worshiping god in this life will be fulfilled when you see him face to face he will be there you can worship him in person not even by faith anymore faith's over he's there tears will be wiped away No more pain, no more suffering, no more night. In a moment, you see the beauty and glory of God, and in his presence will be fullness of joy. It will be the culmination of the joy of your life to see the giver of grace and to put your hands into the nail scars of his hands. He who saved you and called you will be there. And I hope you shout hallelujah. I want that for you. I want that for you. I want that for everyone here. But the reality is, that will not be the case for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. That joy is for Christians alone. I want you to know what to expect if today you say, Nice sermon, Pastor. Thanks. And then you go on about your life. If you put yourself in that category, I sent you plagues, I sent you armies, I sent you drought and famine. If you say, Then he'll say, I sent you a sermon in this day. okay. So if you say no, I want you to understand what is going to happen. The book of Revelation in chapter 6 gives a poetic picture of the final judgment of God. When Christ appears to end all things. This is what it looks like to be unprepared to meet God. Revelation six fourteen. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, great ones, generals, the rich and powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? Do you understand, church? If you're not ready, if you are unprepared, The sight of Jesus coming will be the most terrifying sight that you can imagine. The most powerful people on this earth are running for their lives and diving into the caves to hide themselves from the face of Jesus. No one can stand against him. No one. So please don't try to. Please don't try to. You have an opportunity today to do what Israel did not do. You don't have to follow the path of destruction you can be prepared to meet god you can have your relationship with god fundamentally changed to when you see jesus coming it is the completion of a life lived worshiping him so trust in jesus today believe the gospel repent of your sin turn to god enter into the joy of his abiding presence with you. One day, we will all meet God. This life today, right now, determines everything. Your eternity hangs in the balance, so please prepare to meet your God. Pray with me.